Welcome to Junior Doctors Corner, a podcast made especially for junior doctors and medical students. My name is Helen Zhang and I'm a junior doctor working in Australia and your host for this episode. In every episode, Dana and I interview someone with a unique story and cover all topics from career to well-being to life beyond medicine and much more. So without further ado, let's start this episode stat. Hi everyone, my name's Helen and today we're very lucky we've got uh, Kriti, who's an ophthalmology registrar, who, despite a very busy day, has agreed to come and talk to us about the vital signs of eyes and also a hot topic, uh, the process of getting on to the ophthalmology program. So welcome, Kriti. Hi, Helen. Thanks for having me here and um, uh, putting up with my busy schedule and changes. Wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for accommodating your, your schedule to fit us in. Um, so before we start, I've got, a, I've got an eye joke. Okay. I to start off with. Hit me. <laughs> <laughs> Let me know what you think. Okay. okay. Why did the ophthalmologist say that you never put avocados in your eyes? Hmm. I don't know. Nah. So all I can think about is like smashed avocados because they're like topical all the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You're on the money. Am I? Um, so you don't get guacoma. <laughs> <laughs> That's so oh I'm glad you laughed. <laughs> I was a bit worried there. <laughs> oh, all, all of the eye jokes are really lame. Oh my gosh, I've got so many more, but I think I will, for the purpose of everyone listening, uh, I think I might save them. Gonna stop listening right again. now. <laughs> before everyone stops listening. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, so before we start and talk, talking about all the um, nuts and bolts of eyes, could yeah. you give us a quick spiel about um, yourself and why you've chosen to do ophthalmology? Yeah, okay, so I'm currently a third year I've just started my third year at Prince of Wales Hospital uh, in the ophthalmology training program that they run Um, I am PGY8 which is kind of hard to believe when I say it out loud but um, I have to accept it Um, so I basically did uh, two years of the standard internship residency at Concord Hospital and then I did two years of um, being a senior resident at Sydney Eye Hospital and then I did one year of unaccredited registrar work at Prince of Wales Hospital before I got onto the training program. Um, I did my high school in uh, Sydney so I've basically just lived in Sydney my entire life. Um, Currently, I'm working at Sutherland Hospital, which is a bit of a trek, which is why I was late today, because everyone has started driving again and schools have opened. So um, there's a lot of traffic around, which I'm not a fan of. Um, but, um, you know, other things about me, I I love going to the beach. So mm-hmm. I like the fact that the yeah. Sutherland Hospital Drive is nice and um coastal so I've just been uh, enjoying that and actually listening to podcasts on the way to try and keep me awake (laughs) (laughs) um so and what was your second question about um oh yeah my second um so I did throw in a double question there my second question was why did you choose to do ophthalmology oh why did I choose okay so um For me, ophthalmology, uh, it was a personal reason. Um, My brother was born with a uh, congenital eye condition in one of his eyes. So I think it was just like, you know, he was like I was six when he was born. So it was just I was just going to eye clinic with him all the time. I didn't really understand what was happening because I was six. All I knew is that we sit here for a long, long time. There's lots of machines and bright lights. But it was obviously something that stayed with me as I grew up. And then when I decided to do medicine, it was just something that I thought about, you know, because I could see how uh, only having good vision in one eye you know, what kind of effects it has had on him and also just in general um, understanding the importance of um, having good vision and additionally how rewarding it is to be able to change that for someone if they don't have good vision and being able to give them that because such a high percentage of what we experience every day is related to things that we see and um, and I think a lot of us take that for granted but not everyone has that privilege. 
Mm, yeah, for sure. That's that's a really powerful uh, reason for wanting to do ophthalmology. And also, thank you for sharing with us your journey to getting into ophthalmology. And I think for everyone, we can kind of see how hard you work to get on. And um, as we know, ophthalmology is one of the most competitive specialties to get into. So um, having gotten onto the program, um, how are you finding it as a registrar? It's definitely... The way it was described to me by one of the registrars when I was not on the program was um, when you get on, you don't be, you're not stressed anymore in that way. You're just stressed in a different way because there's so many exams. <laughs> um, <laughs> and you're like, you know, you have to learn how to be a specialist in the field, which means you have to be an expert, which is, like, difficult because, mm-hmm. like, you kind of have to know everything about it and people are going to pay money to you one day to tell them like exactly what the problem is. So it's a bit of pressure, um, but it's definitely less stressful than the uncertainty of like not really knowing what you're going to be when you grow up because you don't know if you're going to be accepted into this club, right? So I'm really um, enjoying the training program. Prince of Wales offers a really amazing training program with really supportive um Uh, really supportive bosses um, and it's a really nice clinic and we also get um, a lot of uh, experience in different um, parts of um, New South Wales. Uh, So I just, um, where we met, Helen, actually, um, (laughs) in Broken Hill, just got back from Broken Hill um, and I'm at Sutherland now. I'm going to Tamworth next. Um, So it's not just about like, like, you know, working in the city and like, you know, seeing those kinds of patients, you actually, uh, because there's just so much, um, there's just so many problems um, with people's eyes everywhere, you actually um, get a very diverse experience. Um, And so yeah, I've really been enjoying it. Um, I've done more than half of my exams. So I'm I'm feeling, um, I'm feeling a bit better about that side of things Um, because when you first um, start the training program there's a lot of exams to get through and um, it can be a bit overwhelming uh, because you're learning you know if you haven't been a registrar before then you're learning how to be a registrar you're learning how to do surgery for the first time and you're also learning um, you know you're also studying for these really hard exams so the first um, couple of years can be quite stressful and overwhelming in a different way but yeah, once you get through that, um, you can actually start to enjoy the learning and kind of try and figure out what kind of specialist you're going to be and that kind of thing. So yeah, I think overall, I'm in a better place now than I was a few years ago. <laughs> yeah, wow. Um, it sounds like the the stress and the challenges don't stop. Um, no. <laughs> yeah, and you mentioned something which I wanted to hone in on a bit more, and that was. Um, that, you know, while you were trying to get onto the program and for those out out there who might be interested in trying to get on, there's a lot of uncertainty, especially when, you know, you're not not assured a spot on the program and you're still trying to get on. Um, I think that uncertainty, I imagine, would be something really difficult to deal with, especially a few years down the track. And, um, you know, with other specialties, you might see your friends getting on to earlier. Um, And on top of that, that challenge of having once getting on, gotten, getting onto the program, having to move around uh, a lot, um, especially if you have um, a partner or family um, in Sydney. With all these challenges, how, what sort of motivates you to um, get over them and how do you deal with all these challenges? Yeah, so, I mean, initially with the uncertainty thing, <clears throat> So um, it can be very disheartening and it can be very like at every point of the way you can easily feel like you want to give up and what's the point and, you know, they're never going to take me and all of that sort of thing. Um, So I think it's important to just remember that um, you got into medicine, which was really hard, um and you may or may not have also gotten into a selective school which was also probably really hard and even if you didn't you tried really hard and you know you did well in the HSC you got into medical school so you're not stupid so you I, I don't know am I allowed to say stupid anyway whatever you can edit it out later. <laughs> I, think, I think you're allowed to say stupid <laughs> 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 
So, you know, you're not a dumb person and so um, it's very easy to think that you are and that's why you're not getting on. Yeah, I think that would speak to a lot of people because I think imposter syndrome is just so, you know. Exactly, yeah, exactly, yeah. And, you know, and like, you know, and everyone has all these like thoughts in their head, like is it because I'm a girl, is it because I'm, you know, Asian or Indian or whatever, like, you know, you have all of these uncertainties and you're like, well, a lot of those things I can't change about myself. Um, so I think the important way of, I guess, the sorry, the advice that I have for how to deal with the uncertainty is um, just to remember and just, I guess, also like question yourself, like, is this really what I'm passionate about? And if I'm passionate about it, then there's no reason to give up really yeah um because um because at the end of the day if you if you have a good personality and you're already smart because like you know everyone that does medicine is already smart then if you keep trying it's very hard to like like it's very rare that you would um like you wouldn't eventually um get where you want to get and there's many different ways as well Mm-hmm. Of, um, of 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 becoming what you want to become. Um, so, like, I think that's the main thing with the with the uncertainty part of your question. Um, it's, you know, I think one of the other things that I found um, quite difficult to um, navigate is unsolicited advice mm. um, because. Um, you know, um, everyone has an opinion and everyone will give you their opinion whether you ask for it or not. And it can be very easy because someone is more senior than you or more experienced than you or even maybe is an ophthalmologist or an ophthalmology registrar. It's very hard to, like, it's very hard to not uh, be stressed by whatever they're saying and, like, try and take it on board, like, every single thing that every single person says. But at the end of the day, that might not be the advice that you need or what will work for you. So I think it's very important to really just be uh, aware of who you are as a person and what you really want. And if in that process you find that actually I don't really like this is not my like be all and end all passion in life, maybe I can do something else instead, <clears throat> then that's fine too. But I think it's just like more important to really figure out what you really want because if, you, if, you're, if you're sure then you will get there. Uh, eventually and it just takes time Mm. for some people Um, as for um, the constant moving around is not actually mm, for me it hasn't been a huge problem um, because I don't have children at the moment Um, but some of my colleagues do and the thing with ophthalmology is that, or even with other um, training programs now, is that they are becoming more and more supportive of that sort of thing. And so it actually isn't that bad. It's actually more about whether, you know, what other kind of supports you have around and whether, you know, they are, have the capacity to come along with you. And actually with the pandemic Um, opening up the possibility of working from home people have found that they can relocate with their partner who is the doctor to these places and therefore they can bring their kids along as well Mm. Um, so I think the other thing is when you do do go to more far away locations the work there because you're often the only doctor there the work there is actually quite flexible like you know if you need to take a break in the middle of the day because you might need to like you know see your child for something or they might need like you know a bottle or something like that like that that can be facilitated in some of these um rural and remote hospitals so it's actually not that difficult and they'll usually give you a house and a car and things like that so you know it's not super easy Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also not impossible. And I, so I don't think that it's necessarily a reason to be like, oh, I can't do surgical training because I have like two kids. Like, yeah, it's, you're not, it's not going to be as easy for you as someone who doesn't have any or is like single. 
Um, but then, you know, you might find that actually having that family support around you makes it a lot more fulfilling to, you know, do that as a job because you know that you're, you know, providing for your family and like, you know, you're going to be a surgeon one day and that's really cool. So, and that's like, you have someone to share that happiness with. So yeah, like, yeah, I mean, I'm definitely not saying it's easy, but it's definitely not impossible. And there are many people doing it. And um, um, most training programs are being quite helpful and flexible with mm-hmm. regards to having families and going part-time and, you know, paternity leave even. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, yeah, I wouldn't be too worried about that. The other thing um, you mentioned actually was with, um, you know, seeing your friends getting onto training programs before you. Um, and that's definitely difficult to deal with because, you know, they're, they're suddenly a consultant and, you know, you're still PGY4, like, yeah. you know, being unaccredited and, like, haven't got an interview this year for the program. And that's hard uh, emotionally. For sure. But the one thing I'm going to um, say about that is you have to remember that the bottleneck is at very different stages for everything. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, um, you know, it might be really easy to get onto a certain training program, but their exams might be really hard or there may be no jobs in Sydney or there might be, it might be really difficult to actually get a reasonable income. Hmm. Um, Similarly, um, you know, you might um, want a really difficult to get onto training program and then, and then, you know, when you do get on, you might realise actually it's probably good that there's not hundreds and hundreds of trainees in this field because then it would dilute the quality of the work that is is out there. I think it's important to just remember that everything is hard <laughs> and just because it might be easy for them when, you know, when they're 24 doesn't mean it's going to be easy for them when they're 50. So yeah. that's that's all I'm going to say about that. I'll stop ranting now. No, I think that's really insightful. And I think it's something that as junior doctors, um, we may sometimes be so focused on the next step that we don't see maybe, yeah, two or three steps down the track, which is what you're Yeah, definitely. Like just because something is easy also means that um, it doesn't mean it's going to be interesting forever either. Like you, you might find that you do something that's easy and then you're bored after like three years and then you're like, you regret your decision. So you just have to figure out what you really want to do, basically. Yeah. That's the hardest part. Yeah, for sure. And um, it was also really good to hear that the program itself is quite supportive of uh, families um, and having families on the program. And I, I guess the other part of that equation is also having a supportive partner who, um, you know, if needed, can do long distance and that sort of thing. So, I yes, guess that yeah. is something that I think everyone should work on in medical school because you don't have time <laughs> to date later. And I think, and I say this to all of my medical students and they're like, what the hell is she talking about? I just want to know about eye drops. And I'm like, no, go and get Bumble and, you know, all of those things and get onto it because that is the thing that is going to make your life good. Oh my <laughs> if goodness. that's what you want. There you go. The real stuff. Where are all the lectures on Bumble? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Thanks, Kriti. All right. I was hoping now we could get into the nuts and bolts of all the vital signs of uh, an ophthalmology consult. And I was hoping we could start with just a general quick overview of eye anatomy. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. So I think... um, what everyone should do is just Google a picture of the eye before yep. they uh, just start to describe things um, and just know, like, basically where things happen. So, you know, foreign bodies from like that are metallic are usually on the cornea and then, you know, like the cornea and the iris makes up the anterior chamber. Behind that is the lens and the whites of the eye is the sclera, but it's covered by another clear layer called the conjunctiva. So if you just look at a label diagram really quickly, every time you see someone with an eye problem, you will understand where to say something is. Yeah. Because I think 
the the one like and you that's probably what you're insinuating but the one thing that makes you feel like someone doesn't really know what they're talking about is when they say something is on a anatomical place that it is not at (laughs) so when you say something like oh there's a foreign body on the iris but you actually mean on the cornea but you can like you can it's on the part of the cornea that overlies the iris then you know it makes it sound like you don't really know um and that can like uh that can that can make it seem like you know you can't your assessment can't really be trusted even though it's probably perfectly fine yeah yeah so and that goes for everything like when I was an intern and I would call uh, orthopedics I would always google like that particular bone and all the different like areas of that bone and I'd be like oh yes it's a proximal a humerus and this and that just so that you know that like they're not gonna you know be like you know who is this Muppet sort of thing (laughs) (laughs) Um, so that's my hot tip for the anatomy and then in terms of um, what we would want to hear when we get called, um, so I think something that like everyone's pet, like something that is everybody's pet peeve that we can't, um, you know, stress enough is that you must get an assessment of their visual acuity if yeah. you do nothing else. Okay. Okay, because that is the one thing that is going to, either like it's it's likened to for example if you call cardiology without an ECG or calling orthopedics without an x-ray okay Mm, yeah you must do their visual acuity is the single most important thing to do okay so um and how to test that my advice for that is to just get a Snellen chart off google print it out on an A4 page and stand three metres away because those are the, that like an A4 Snellen chart is usually a three-metre chart mm-hmm. um, and get it in, you know, you can get it in numbers if they don't understand um, English letters. You can get it in animal shapes if it's a child. Like it's 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 really easy now because of the mm-hmm. internet. Um, uh, and then just do one eye first and then the other eye. Um, and ideally, if you can um, make uh, a pinhole, which is basically um, getting a piece of paper and putting a few holes in it and asking them to look through those holes to see if that improves their vision, um, that would be great. And what's the purpose um, of the pinhole? The purpose of the pinhole is is just to focus the light so that only, you know, straight rays of light are going in um, to the eye. Um, so it essentially acts kind of like glasses to focus only like, you know, specific information rather than information that's coming from everywhere and getting scattered by the patient's cornea and their lens. And if they do wear um, glasses for TV and driving, so distance glasses, you should always test their visual acuity with the glasses on. A lot of the time elderly people will just be wearing reading glasses and you don't test distance vision with reading glasses on. Okay. And that's just something that's hard to get your head around. But just remember, if it's reading glasses, don't put them on. If it's driving or TV glasses, put them on. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. We had a few questions about the vision. Yeah, go for it. Yeah, um, yeah. I was just wondering, so if, say, a person couldn't see the biggest letter on a Snellen chart, yeah. what would you ask them to do next? Yeah, great question. So then you um, see if they can count your fingers. Um, So you start off with holding them pretty close, so maybe like 30 centimetres away, and then that'll be sort of uh, indicate whether you can move them further away or closer. So if they can see them at 30 centimetres, move them a metre away and then move them two metres away. And if they can see them at three metres, then they probably just can't focus on your Snellen chart properly, but they probably do have like six on 60 vision. Mm-hmm. Oh, also thing is when you <laughs> when you call someone with the vision, it, the six is always at the top. Ah, uh, yeah. The six, like so the, the, the six is always at the top and the other number, whatever it is, which could also be six, is always at the bottom. Yeah, that's a good tip. And what, yeah. what does the six actually mean? Yeah, so the six is, um, you know, in Australia we use this, chart named after this person called Snellen um, which 
indicates that at even though you may not be testing it at six meters, but it indicates that that size letter at six meters, um, it, like you can see that letter at six meters, what someone else uh, with normal vision could see at the meters indicated by the lower number. So if your vision is six on 60, you can see it at six metres, but someone with average vision could see that from 60 metres away. So that means that your vision is not that good. Right. Okay. Whereas if if your vision is six on six, then that means that you can see at six metres what the average population can also see at six metres. So that's normal vision. Okay. And if you can get any lower than that, that means that you can see at six metres what someone else would have to go closer to like four meters to see. So you have above average vision. I see. Yes. I see. So that's why the what's what the like really little number is for. Yeah. Um, and a lot of young people will have like six on three or six on four vision. Um, so if you find at 30 centimeters they can't even see the fingers, you move them closer and closer, probably 10 centimeters is enough. Um, if they still can't see your fingers, then uh, keep their other eye covered still um and then just move your hand around so you can move it left to right like waving it or up and down yeah um and then you can so and then ask them whether they can see your hand moving around yeah um and um that is reported so the first one would be reported at as count fingers at whatever distance you could do the count fingers at yeah and then the next one would be hand movements and then if they can't see hand movements either then you have to get a really bright light and shine that into their eye yeah and see if they can see that. And you shine that into basically like all, just imagine the eyes like a like a hollow sphere. So you shine it into all top two and bottom two quadrants of that sphere. And then that would be light perception vision. Mm-hmm. And you can check how many quadrants they can get the light perception vision in. I mean, that's pretty advanced and I wouldn't really expect that from an emergency. But as long as they can, can or can't see the light, yeah, would yeah. be would be enough and sometimes you know they're tired they're in emergency it can take a bit of encouragement um but very few people have vision that is that bad where they can't even see light so yeah yeah okay so in summary for visual acuity basically in a nutshell you have to do it if you want an ophthalmology consult um and you start with the Snellen chart the six is always the number at the top um, yeah. And if they can't see the biggest letter, you then go to um, count fingers and then hand yeah. movements and then light perception. Is that right? Yeah. And just out of interest, what do you do for like babies who can't actually talk? Is there a way to assess their visual acuity? Yeah. So basically you just find a, if they're really young babies, like, um, you know, like a few weeks old sort of thing um you know they can see but they can't really focus on things so it's pretty hard to actually see if they can um focus on anything um so then you would just check their pupils basically to make sure that it's reacting to light and that means that the light is going through to their retina and their optic nerve right um but if they're a bit older like a like a a few months um then they should be able to start um you know, because after six weeks old, they can they can see faces. Right. Um, so they then you can just get um, like a toy and just cover one eye and see if they can follow that toy. Right. Um, and try not to make any sounds because often, like, because they're very good at hearing, so they may be just following the sound. Right. But if you get something that's flashing, for example, then if you get them to follow that around, then that means that they can what we what we call fix and follow. So they can fixate on something and then follow it. Right. That's what baby vision is reported as. Okay, fix and follow. Yeah, fix and okay. follow. And then if they're a little bit older, um, then, um, you know, you might get them to um, count your fingers um, or tell you what something is, like if you have like a little picture of something. Right. They might be able to tell you what it is. And then, it, uh, you know, by like three or four, you could probably do a Snellen chart with um, either numbers or little animals or something on it. Right. Cool. Yeah. So after visual acuity, um, yeah. what are the important parts of a visual exam? Yeah. So, I mean, I think um, just in terms of um, 
making doing a visual assessment um it's also important to before you examine them just ask them if they have ever seen an eye doctor or an optometrist before because a lot of the time people don't know the difference um whether they've had any surgery or laser or a history of contact lens use or um uh, a lazy eye as a child because people often forget and the other thing that people always forget to mention in their medical history is whether they're on any medication eye drops Mm -hmm. um so a lot of the time people will be on glaucoma drops and they then they won't like mention it but turns out they've they've been on these drops for 30 years and you know that might be the reason why their vision isn't very good because their glaucoma is bad or something like that so um that's something that's important to ask um and whether they're known to any specialists because if they've seen a specialist recently then um you'll be able to get a lot of information from the letter right yeah so after visual acuity uh normally we would do an intraocular pressure but many emergency departments don't have the device for measuring it which Mm -hmm. is called a tonometer Mm -hmm. um so if you don't know uh if you don't have one then um you can always ask Uh, a senior person that's on to see if they might know where it's kept because you may be pleasantly surprised and they usually like most people that have done emergency training know how to use it or you can always google a video because there's so many videos on youtube about it um and um otherwise if there really isn't anything or if it's someone that definitely won't let you do it because you have to stay still for it then you actually literally just have to um press on their eye with your finger and make sure both sides feel pretty similar. And you can even compare it to what your eye feels like because your eye should theoretically be a good eye pressure. (laughs) And so if it's harder than your eye and if one is more hard than the other, then maybe the intraocular pressure is high. That's so interesting. I I didn't know that. That's that's so interesting. Yeah, Um, it's called digital tonometry. Digital tonometry. But not digital yeah. as in not Computer. digital like the digital age. It's like digital like the digits on your hand. Um, so that's actually uh, like a dying art, but it's a, good, it's a good thing to know how to do, especially you when you're sent out, um, out yeah. back. Um, yeah. yeah. With the handheld uh, tonometers, does it actually hurt the patient's eye when, when the little probe uh, like kind of presses on their eyeball? No, it kind of tickles and it's a bit alarming because it like just taps on your eye and then retracts. So they can often blink and recoil from it, but it doesn't hurt. It doesn't hurt. I've had it done to me. It doesn't hurt. And if they're really stressed, then you can um, put in some um, numbing drops into their eye, like some um, uh, amethicane or lignocaine or anything like that um, so that they don't feel it at all. Right. Okay. Yeah. Cool. And what's the next part of um, an exam that you'd want us to know about? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, the t- yeah, the pressure, I mean, it's it's good if you can do it. If you can't, then that's okay uh, if you don't have the measurement device. Then um, I would say um, the best thing to do is to check the pupils. Yep. So make yep. sure that they're um, on face value, just looking at the patient, they're equal in size. Um, and then uh, test one at a time to see if they're reactive to light. And then the uh, the more advanced skill, which I wouldn't really expect um, all interns and residents to know, is to check for a relative afferent pupillary defect, which um, gives us a lot of information. And so if you can, um, you know, video yourself actually doing it to prove to us that they do or don't have one, that would be really useful information, if, especially if someone comes in with vision loss. Mm-hmm. So, you know, saying it over the phone and saying, yeah, they do or don't have a RAPD um, is kind of hard to believe because we, like, it's hard to know whether you really, like, know how to do it because it. it's a pretty advanced skill to, and, like, we still get it wrong. Mm-hmm. And, like, you know, you know, bosses will disagree with each other about whether <laughs> there is or isn't one. Okay. But if you can, like, you know, get someone to help you just, um, swinging the um, torch light from one eye to the other and back again um, and spending the same like two seconds on each pupil 
if you can just get a video of that and send it to the uh, registrar, that would be really helpful if someone comes in with like, you know, sudden vision loss, um, unexplained, um, painless sort of thing. And what do you expect in a abnormal result with the RIP? Yeah, so if it's if it's normal, then you swing the torch from one to the other and it just constricts both times. But if it's abnormal, then the abnormal eye will actually uh, start to dilate initially when you swing the torch back to it. Okay. okay. And the reason is neurological and I think I would be very boring if I went into why but you should watch a video on it because they explain it much better than me and um, the reason it's purely anatomical um, and it's about the because of the optic chiasm and where um, how the pupillary light reflex um, happens and the fact that both of the eyes are connected Um, but that 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 indicates that there's a problem like a retina and beyond in the eye rather than like at the front of the eye, and that's very useful information. But it's only certain, like you don't do this for like someone that comes in with conjunctivitis. Like this is for someone where you can't tell what it is because you can't necessarily look into the inside of the eye, but someone's come in with profound vision loss. It may or may not be painful. It's a useful thing to check for them. And, um, you know, there may be a registrar in emergency around that can help you figure out how to do it. Um, that's the only really time where I would recommend bothering. Um, mm-hmm. But, it's, you know, you don't need to do it if someone comes in with, like, an injury or, like, yeah. um, something superficial. Yeah, that's good to know because I think often um, as, as interns and residents, um, it can be quite daunting to call an ophthalmologist and we don't know exactly what parts of the exam to do or not do. But yeah. um, it's good to know. Visual acuity have to do, RIP yeah. not necessarily. Yeah. Okay. Um, the next thing um, I would say that's really easy to do after pupils is, is the eye movements. Um, And this is important because in emergency you'll see people that come in with double vision or you'll see them after a fall and they might have a fracture of their orbital wall and or they might have some sort of eye pain and you just want to, it's quite easy to do, it's fast and it's useful. So you can test exactly the way you like learnt in medical school. You hold your finger up in front of them, get them to follow your finger make sure they're not moving their head when you're doing it and you make an H um, and see if they can uh, move all the way in all different directions um, and see if it's limited and just write down, you know, they're limited. The left eye is limited when the patient looks left and, you know, you don't have to use all the technical terms. If you just simply describe it, that's enough. Um, And then, you know, if you want to kind of go a bit further, you can test one eye separately because that can sometimes give us a bit more information. Right. Do you look for any particular signs um, on this uh, when you test visual eye movements? Yeah, you just you just have to see if they can go, if the eye is, both eyes are moving all the way. Yeah. Because okay. if they're not, then, yeah, for example, if they have like a sixth nerve palsy, um, so the sixth cranial nerve only innervates one eye muscle. And so if they can't look in, you know, if they can't um, look all the way, uh, if they can't abduct all the way, then they may have a sixth nerve palsy. And that, that can be really useful because then you're like, okay, well, why do they have a sixth nerve palsy? Have they had a infection do they have raised in intracranial pressure that's giving them this or is it microvascular because of their diabetes or do I need to do a stroke workup so yeah that's that's why it can be useful and what you're looking for is basically just whether or not both eyes can go all the way in all of the um you know in all the nine positions yeah okay um do you ever worry about nystagmus um I mean, acute nystagmus is pretty rare. It's like a like a neurological problem, or like most of the time, it's like long standing and it's just something that you notice. Yeah. The only time when you know 
you can get acute nystagmus um, where it is a little bit relevant is when you're assessing for benign positional vertigo. Yeah. Uh, and, um, you know, that's something that is not really something that you would call us about, to be honest. So because <laughs> um, it would only be, um, it would only be, you know, they would come in with a different presentation and the eye problem would not be the first problem that they have. Mm. Um, but other than that, yeah, like people don't really just go into random nystagmus yeah. unless they're really, really sick, in which case you're just doing a scan anyway because it's not an eye problem, it's a brain problem. Yeah. Okay, yeah. gotcha. Good to know. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, nothing inside the eyes is going to give them nystagmus acutely. <laughs> <laughs> Cool. Um, so what what about using the slit lamp? I know this is something that will be hard to kind of talk over. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just before the slit lamp, the only other thing I would say is um, just to test the visual field one eye at a time. Yeah. And I know in med school you get to, you to do the wiggling finger thing. Yeah. But it's actually much easier to just do um, test count fingers in all four quadrants. Okay. Um, again of the vision so you just flash um, one two or five usually because they're, they're the easier ones to see yeah. um, in up uh, in the top two and bottom two quadrants and then you yeah. can just write um, visual fields to confrontation are full in both eyes or you can see which you can say which quadrant they missed out on okay yeah okay yeah. Uh, and if they come in with a scotoma like a blind spot, then another useful thing to do is to, you know, just get one of those grid papers like they have in um, in those graph charts or like ECG paper basically yeah, and, and paper. just get them to grid paper, yeah, yes, thanks. Um, <laughs> and then just get them to draw out exactly what like they're seeing and that's pretty okay. useful as well because then we can try and figure out where the problem might be. Okay, yeah. Yeah. So that's a lot, but this is like, you know, a comprehensive ophthalmological examination. Yeah. Um, and, but, you know, you, have, you will get a hang of tailoring it to what they have come in with, and we certainly don't expect you to do all of these things for someone that's come in with like an obvious like a red eye infection kind of thing. Okay. Yeah. This cool. is like a full-on neurological assessment. Okay. <laughs> Okay. But if you know how to do this, then if you call neurology, they will also be very, very impressed. <laughs> okay, that's good to know. Um, but the slit lamp, so, okay, uh, slit lamps that are owned by emergency departments are usually like like the <laughs> like seconds level, <laughs> like really dodgy really um, breaks all yeah. the time kind of thing. Right. Um most of the time it doesn't work because it's not plugged in properly <laughs> and because it has to plug into the wall and to the slit lamp itself and the cabling within the slit lamp, like from the bulb to the actual microscope, also has to be connected. So, yeah, just maybe check that. <laughs> check that first. Um, a lot of um, because so the bulbs used to keep um, uh, dying, so a lot of EDs also have like a timer switch. So one of the reasons why it might not be working is because um, you have to also turn on the timer. Yeah. Um, then the most important thing with actually getting a good image is to make sure the patient has been uh, positioned correctly. Okay. Because it's very, it's very, uh, it's a bit finicky and if the patient is not exactly at the right position with the chin rest um, and their the sides like the sides of their eye has to line up to the line on the uh, on the side bars of the slit lamp. Their forehead has to be all the way forward uh, against the band. Yeah, unless the head is in that position, you're probably not going to be able to see anything useful. Okay, so that can be quite hard with elderly people because the chair that that you might have for them might not be tall or short enough, but spending a bit of time and actually getting them positioned properly is both comfortable for you and for the patient and that will help you actually be able to see something and not feel frustrated that you can't figure out what they have. Mm -hmm. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah, so that's the main thing. And the next thing is it's a microscope and so as long as you have it on the white light, if you just move it forwards and backwards, at some point it will become clear. Okay. Okay. So yeah. you just literally you just have to move it around 
all the way forwards or all the way backwards until you can see a clear image. And also just checking things like, you know, making sure someone hasn't fiddled around with the IPs to make sure that they haven't put in like their script of like minus five or something. So just yeah. to make sure it's on zero, you wear your own glasses for distance and um, and you make sure the patient is um, centred. Use the white light or the blue light only. The blue light is for fluorescine. Right. Like, for example, if they come in with a, a red eye or a painful eye, you should always do a fluorescein examination, mm-hmm. um, put a drop in, make sure it's uh, not 2%. It has to be 1%, otherwise it's not. Um, it's too um, concentrated mm-hmm. um, and use the blue light. And um, the annoying thing is that a lot of people accidentally use the green light, which doesn't light up fluorescein and it's not oh. useful for emergencies. <laughs> and they think that there's no epithelial defect, but oh, there no. actually is because they're using the green light instead of the blue light. Gosh, that's tricky. Why do they have a green light? So the green light is useful for us because it's the red-free light. So we can assess other more like minute things with it like whether something is you know white cells or red cells in the anterior chamber or whether like how thin the optic nerve really is so it's kind of like a high level thing that is useful but I feel like in a it should be disabled in an emergency (laughs) situation Yeah, that would help us too. It would be a lot less confusing. It's so, yeah, and I know like at Prince of Wales in the emergency, they put like really big signs on everything, like right. do not use this, like yeah. blue, <laughs> fluorescent, like they're, they've been yeah. very clear and it's actually like the quality of their referrals have improved since they've done that. Oh, <laughs> if only, you know, that's something we should definitely try and introduce in every EDI. Yeah, there should definitely be like a like a little... Yeah, like a little how-to guide next to the lamp. Sure. Yeah, I, for sure. I, I can't tell you how many, like, friends and colleagues I've spoken to who really are just scared to turn on or even touch the slit lamp in ED just because, mm-hmm. like, we don't get taught a lot of this during med school. Yeah, it's so overwhelming. I remember being overwhelmed because, <laughs> like, I did emergency, um, like I was an intern at Canterbury Hospital and I just had no idea what I was doing because, like, I didn't really, I learned about it maybe for a day in medical school, but it's not really something you do all the time. Yeah. But it's actually not even that hard because you can (laughs) see the problem right in front of you. So it's actually much easier than listening to the heart, for example. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) because that's, like, so subjective, whereas this is like, oh, yeah. I can see this metallic <laughs> foreign body on your cornea. <laughs> I think you definitely make it sound a bit easier than it might be. <laughs> yes, hopefully with some practice, yeah. yeah. But a lot of the emergency consultants, and I think as a junior you're scared to approach them, but a lot of them actually really know how to use it properly and they're like they want to help you mm. learn. And so I think the most important thing I I want like people to take out of this is that like I know it's hard and it's awkward when you're junior but if you just ask someone like how do I do this yeah like that that is the best way to learn you just have to you just have to put yourself out there and occasionally you will be turned down and people will say no I'm too busy figure it out yourself or this and that but um the best way to learn anything is to just keep asking until someone tells you how to do yeah. it yeah until then there's YouTube <laughs> <laughs> yeah and in some ways I guess it's better to ask while you're a junior and there might be fewer expectations of that yeah yeah definitely yeah yeah definitely you're a blank slate <laughs> yeah <laughs> so yeah ask questions um which brings me on to my next question, um, yeah. which is about the next section of this podcast, which I think yeah. a lot of people might be dying to hear. Um, oh, my God. <laughs> better make it good then. <laughs> this is it. Um, so, as you know, ophthalmology is a very popular specialty and a lot of people uh, want to tr- get on, but the whole process can sometimes be a bit mysterious and there yeah. are quite a few components to it. Uh, as, mm. as a registrar who's gotten uh, recently, I think you'd be really well-placed to give us an overview of what this process is and any tips and tricks that you might have. Yeah, yeah. So I think the main thing to focus on 
is how the process actually works, like in terms of logistically, um, because it's changing all the time. It changes every year. It changed like I applied a few times and every year I applied there was a different thing that you had to do. Okay. Um, and if you hadn't done it by the time that it said, you know, the deadline was there, you missed out and there was no mercy. So mm. you have to like go to that Ransco, the college website and like look, like read it every few months to basically make sure you haven't missed out on anything because no one is going to oh. ring you up and tell you. Yeah. <laughs> no one's going to be like, hey, remember to submit that thing on yeah. this website that's really obscure. So <laughs> that's the main thing that I would say is okay. don't miss out because you forgot to read about what to do. Okay. Because you'll hate yourself for that. Okay. Yeah. Um, the next thing um, in terms of the, how the selection process works, um, at the moment um, they've introduced a lot of hurdles. Um, so they, um, and there's like a few different like uh, rules, like you have to be, I think you have to be greater than PGY3 at the time of interview. So you have to sort of back calculate it. So you can't apply, for example, as of when you are a resident. Right. Um, I think. Um, and, um, and you have to have certain, and this is relevant for people that may have been, for example, international students or something like that, um, uh, the permanent residency status and that sort of logistical thing is important as well because, yeah. like, that's just like an instant reject if you, if you don't fulfil those criteria. Right. And then also um, they have uh, basically a few hurdles like first you have to do this, it's kind of like a sort of a, a, you can call it a personality test, it's called the situational judgment test. Yeah. Uh, which is like an online multiple choice exam that they do at, quite early in the year. So the other thing I'll say is definitely like the year before you want to apply, you have to really know when the deadline is because it's yeah. very early. Right. Um, so the situation on the test is very early in the year. I'm pretty sure it's already happened. Like it's very early or it's about to happen very soon. Right. Um, so get so that is a multiple choice test about um, and uh, yeah. it's about what to do like if you know a patient is angry or whatever like they'll yeah. give you all these options and you have to you have to choose what you would do and what the most appropriate thing is and uh, you can read a bit more about that online there are different colleges around the world that have implemented that as a selection tool so it's really useful to look those things up and talk to your colleagues like even the GP college have um, have have had that for a while uh, in terms of getting resources on how to prepare for that uh, or just kind of get into the mindset of it yeah then once you pass that they have a interview okay uh well sorry they haven't I mean they have an application then you do the situation test then they have the Ransco the college have an interview which is a multi-mini station interview so it has seven or eight stations where they ask you different questions about professionalism um and um what they call the um, seven or eight um, important qualities of an ophthalmologist, mm -hmm. and that's based on the CAN-MEDS structure of, uh, of selecting someone. Then once you get through that interview, then you go into this, you get selected from, like, based on how well you do in that interview. It depends. It changes every year. But when I did it, situation was the first hurdle. You had to pass that. Then you had to get a interview, then you had to pass that, and then you were in this um, pool of applicants that was submitted to each different state because in ophthalmology the training program is run by individual states and New South Wales is the only state that has two training programs, so there's Sydney Eye Hospital and Prince of Wales Hospital, yeah. um, uh, whereas every other state just has one um, and I think Tasmania doesn't have their, tra their own training program yet. Then you get, like, submitted to this pool and then you individually apply to each state training program through their regular selection process that happens in August, like recruit annual recruitment. Right. Which is the thing that, like, you have to get across because everyone's website is, like, not very 
necessarily easy to navigate and the process is um, different for everyone. Some of them you just email someone, some of them is like a full-on another application that you have to fill out and some of them is like, you know, like I think Queensland is like something really quite interesting. I think you have to apply through their junior medical recruitment and but then you just apply that for the actual training program through there because that's just how their system works so mm-hmm. there's all these nuances to um to the actual process yeah. and the only way you really find out about that these things is um talking to people that have gotten on yeah. um recently because they will be able to give you the most accurate information yeah because even me like even what i know now is outdated <laughs> yeah, because it changes so much and because everything is online and everything has deadlines that are electronic it's very hard to actually like have it like there's no one person that exactly knows how it is and unfortunately there's actually no website where you can figure that out like the college won't give you that information okay they just say yeah you've made it past the application and the interview now you've got to reapply to the states and then they may or may not re-interview you so the yeah. bigger states, like, um, and it changed with the pandemic, but the states that have a larger intake, like Mel, uh, uh, Victoria, New South Wales, and I think Queensland, um, they, base, and I think all, and New Zealand is counted in this as well, they always do their own interview yeah. before they select you, um, but um, other people will go off your CV and your, um, and your like, a RANSCO um, hurdle interview things that, that you've already done um, then rank your like which whichever state you want from one to six or whatever uh, and then they will rank you so it's called it's like a it's an it's called a NOP a national ophthalmology matching program okay <laughs> and so when they they do the NOP so they 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 like whoever you've put first and if they've put you first then you're going to get that one and then it's kind of like the state that put you the highest that you put the highest is going to be matched to you I see so I know you can get real into your head about what I should strategically put first or not but you should just order it as to what you want yeah because if you really want some state but some other state really wants you then um then if the state that you really want doesn't really want you, then the state that really does want you will get you. So there's nothing really to like overthink about it. <laughs> Gosh, just sounds like there's so many elements to it and there's no... It's a very extensive, it's very extensive. It takes over your whole life. Oh, great. But it's okay because yeah. it like, you know, if that's what you really want in life, then then like what else are you going to do anyway? So, <laughs> um, and, you know, everyone is going through something similar and your other, you know, colleagues who are doing other training programs are going to have similar, like have a similar feeling anyway and you can um, talk to them and get some debriefing and stuff because it is really hard but that's okay. So is like cleaning a toilet. It's really hard. I wouldn't want to do that. (laughs) Everything's hard. Everything is hard. So just don't, don't like, don't overthink it. Yeah. But yeah, I think everything's hard, but I guess, you know, you're an example of what it could be like on the other side for the, the I mean, I'm painting a really rosy picture, but like <laughs> it's still hard, like even afterwards. <laughs> yeah, you mentioned that as well. Yes. Doesn't <laughs> um, but it's it's if you like it, if you like it, then it's worth it. Because if you like it, then it's hard, but you like it. Yeah. Yeah, that's so true. Yeah. And then just the other thing with the selection process, um, there are a lot of things that you can do to uh, to get your CV up to a standard that they would consider. Yeah. Again, I would structure it with the CanMeds criteria in mind. Yeah. Um, in terms of, and the, it has like seven or eight things like being a scholar, which is like what you've achieved academically, being a collaborator, like teamwork sort of stuff where you've worked um, as part of something bigger and volunteering and uh, and and um, presentations, research, 
Um, and before there used to be a lot of focus on research with ophthalmology and people used to have to do PhDs to get into the training program, but a lot of it changes and the focus of who they want to take changes every year as well. So it's important to really figure out what they're placing an emphasis on because if they're only going to weigh research by 5% and they're going to weigh rural experience by 30%, then even if you've done seven papers, it's you're not going to be as um, highly ranked as the person that spent six months working in Darwin, for example. So that is something that you can gather from talking to people um, and talk and and looking at that um, Ransco website because they do release those sorts of things. Yeah, yeah. I think a key thing you really mentioned is that the rules of the game keep changing and it's really on us to keep up to date and keep checking that website. So, yeah, that's really helpful to learn that. Yeah, exactly. And the other thing is um, to figure out what they want um, and then maximise out of those things whatever you're best at because that's what's going to make you stand out. So if you're really not um, a super, like, you know, if you really, like, your life situation means you really can't work in a rural place or you can't get any sort of um, Indigenous experience or volunteering experience, then that means you really need to focus on the research and make that the big standout thing for you. Or if you find that you really can't do the research component, then you have to, like, make something else stand out for you. But, yeah, yeah um, it's uh, it's also important to figuring out, to figure out, what you like what you are best at as a person and emphasize on that because people will give you advice as to oh you have to do this you have to do a master's degree you have to do five papers in this you have to do this but then when you look at the people that get on not all of them have done all of those things but all of them have done something that's unique that has made them um appeal to the people that do the selection yeah. Uh, and they've obviously capitalised on what their strengths are yeah. and that's something that they would look for. Okay. Well, that's good to know that there is some sort of flexibility and, yeah, that we it's ideal that we have some point to stand out on. Cool. Well, thank you so much, Kriti, for talking to us. Um, that was, I think, it, a lot of us will, you know, agree that was extremely helpful, um, particularly as ophthalmology, you know, in itself, it's not taught that uh, that much in medical school, but also, you know, you've given us so much clarity over um, the mystery of what it is to apply to the ophthalmology program. Um, so there are a, lo- a lot of pearls in there for us. Um, so thank you so much. And before you go, um, as yes. you promised, I wanted to share another joke that um <laughs> I joke that I had obviously okay <laughs> just before you go um I actually quite like this one all right why is the life expectancy of ophthalmologists longer than most other doctors ah. I don't know because eye doctors dilate <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, I actually realised this probably applies to ONG doctors too. In <laughs> oh, my God. They, I'm going to use that one. <laughs> they probably do dilate because they, they leave, they, they, they seem to be quite, um, they seem to keep working until they're very, very old. <laughs> so, I mean, we could still be here like 40 years later having the same conversation. <laughs> Um, so, there you go. So we'll see. Yeah. Um, yeah. Look, and I, if anyone wants um, any advice, uh, you know, if you're in Sydney and you're like overwhelmed by what to do and uh, whether you should apply or when you should apply, like I'm happy to answer people's questions if they want to email me or whatever. Um, that's totally okay. I can understand it can be really isolating because. No one in the hospital even knows how to help you because it's not like you want to be a BPT or a set trainee. Yeah. They're like, oh, ophthalmology, oh, you better talk to someone about that. But they won't tell you who to talk to, especially if there's no eye clinic at the hospital that you're yeah. working at. 
So um, I can understand that feeling. Um, so, yeah, um, feel free to reach out and, um, you know, I can even redirect you to someone that I know that's wherever you are. Um, and best of luck. And, yeah, don't take everything too seriously. Okay? Sign <laughs> oh, off advice. That's really, really nice, Critty. Thank you so much. Um, and for all the listeners out there, we'll include Critty's email in the links at the bottom of the podcast so yeah thank you so much Kriti no problem so for our very special listeners I really hope you enjoyed this episode and got something useful out of it thank you for sticking with us to this point and as an extra present for listening till here uh, Kriti wanted to offer her email address out to any listeners who might want to reach out or seek some advice about ophthalmology or getting onto the program because as we know it's a long it's a daunting and it's a challenging process but it's not impossible and there are people out there who want to help you so Kriti's email is Kriti, K-R-I-T-I at live, L-I-V-E dot com dot A-U. If you really like that episode, please don't forget to leave a review on iTunes to help a sister out. And don't forget to subscribe to our email list so that you never miss an episode.